Chapter 4 of Seeing Darkly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by Rev. John Sparhawk Jones. Chapter 4 A New Year Sermon. Quote, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Unquote. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. By permission of Cyrus, the Jews of the captivity returned to Judea in large numbers, although many remained in Babylon. The prophets of that era, some five centuries before Christ, were Haggai and Zechariah who supported each other and converged their efforts upon the rebuilding of the temple and the revival of the old forms of worship. Glad that a fragment, at least, of their countrymen had escaped out of the fascinations and entanglements of mighty Babylon, those godly men tried to reconcile them to the plain fare and hard work necessary to the rehabilitation of the Jewish state. The oracles that pass under the name of Zechariah had reference to these contemporaneous events and also opened long vistas into succeeding ages. These latter being apocalyptic in character, that is, pertaining to the revelation of future and undiscovered events, were naturally unintelligible to those who heard them, probably to the prophet himself, and, indeed, are largely so to us and the modern world who read them now. The text, in which the prophet throws on his canvas a vision of the great day of Jehovah, a dark day of gloom and terror, clearing away at evening into a blue, cloudless sky, is one of his apocalyptic passages. He foresees looming on the far horizon a notable battle, which will outrank in significance the most decisive and famous fields of the world's history. Marathon, Cannae, Tours, Blenheim, Waterloo, Sedan, Gettysburg, none of them will outshine it, by reason of the gravity and reach of the issues involved. So much, at least, may be collected from the prophet's language. Quote, Behold, I will gather all nations unto Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses spoiled. Then shall Jehovah go forth and fight against those nations, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. In that day the light shall not be clear nor dark, neither day nor night, yet at the evening time there shall be light." Unquote. Such a description foretokens an unparalleled state of things. No contest has yet taken place that deserves to be set forth in such tremendous phrase. There have been battles in which precious interests were at stake, and when the destiny of nations and of creeds and the course of coming history hung upon the uncertain cast of the die. Ideas, institutions, principles, policies have sought from age to age the final arbitrament of arms, but no war has been waged that could properly be described as a gathering of the nations against Jerusalem. Even should you take the language metaphorically as a pen picture of the conflict between truth and error, righteousness and wrong, even so, that issue has never yet been definitely settled as here predicted by the Hebrew prophet. In every century, moral ideas have had to fight with immoral ones, spiritual forces with carnal, new and high conceptions of progress with old, burdensome traditions and customs, pure doctrines with demoralizing and degraded ones. The kingdoms of light and of darkness have been embattled time out of mind and have rolled their billows of blood over the earth. But there has been nothing quite commensurate with this oracle, at evening time it shall be light. Probably because the world has not yet reached its evening, it may be in the early afternoon, 
possibly in the morning, of its history. In any case, it is obvious that finality has not yet been reached. The battle still smokes and thunders. The world, as it stands, is in a mixed state. Neither clear nor dark. It is chaotic, bubbling, fermenting, has not worked itself into proportion and balance and a final form. What the ultimate phase shall be that will precede the incoming of a purer and approximately perfect state of society, such as the optimism of the Hebrew prophets and their inspired sagacity foretold, no one can say. They all touch lightly upon this topic, and not in terms to gratify curiosity. They see the future of the world in a large, dim, ragged way, and throw out curt, abrupt, sibylline sentences about it, of somewhat ambiguous meaning. But it is clear that they actually see something shimmering, glowing, globing up in the cloudy vault of coming time. This oracle, that passes under the name of Zechariah, is a sample of their style. The prophet catches a glimpse of restless nations mobilizing and moving against Jerusalem in some then-coming age. If any one say, this cannot be literally true, Jerusalem will never again be important enough to attract worldwide attention. It is not according to the geographical fitness of things that it should. The answer is, no man is qualified to affirm this in a world whose fundamental law is change and a perpetual procession of surprising contrasts. Political complications may conceivably set in that can easily shift the seat of interest from Western civilization to the Orient. It would be premature in anyone to say what histories are yet to be enacted upon the globe, what continents are to rise out of the undiscovered deep of time, what splendid empires are to shrink and set, and what new and unheard-of ones are destined to wheel out of dusk and darkness toward a meridian throne and hold the heavens and rule the earth from shore to shore. Men are sometimes dogmatic and opinionative without warrant of knowledge and experience, so that their confident calculations suffer by comparison with the event. The simple truth is that men do not know and cannot guess what is brewing, what is shaping, what is coming, what road the long caravan of humanity will take, or in what hemisphere and in what lands the great epic actions will yet be done that shall promote the advancing destinies of the race and manifest the increasing purpose of God. All this lies in the shadow, lies silent on the verge of time, is a subject of political conjecture or of apocalyptic dreaming. For practical use, however, the provision of the prophet in the text need not be restricted to any one era or event, howsoever conspicuous and cardinal. In a general way, it announces a truth of universal validity and is a descriptive mark of every age. Indeed, it is denominative of the whole scheme of things under which we live, not alone that generation which, according to Zechariah, shall see the confederated nations girding Jerusalem with armies and trenches and blazing campfires and bristling steel, but all the ages and generations of man on the earth have been neither clear nor dark. The last phase of affairs, the last great day of the reigning regime, will simply be, in this respect, an epitome and culminating expression of all that has gone before. There never has been a time of the world to which this terse and pithy sentence of the Hebrew prophet was not applicable. It is true not only of the historic evolution of the race, but also in the realm of nature. Nature, as it bears upon moral law and the demonstration of moral truth, is neither clear nor dark. The physical universe establishes a few great principles, and proves certain things about God, provided one's mind be ready to admit the doctrine of a personal creator. Power, precision, 
adaptation, order, wisdom, method are evinced in the times, velocities, and punctualities of the sidereal heavens. Sentient life also is maintained on the planet by the virtues of sun, air, and rain, so that each species is supplied with proper food. Nature is not totally dark, nor, on the other hand, is it perfectly clear. It does not speak decisively concerning the eternity of God, his absolute, uncaused, uncommenced existence, else it would not be possible to assign eternity to matter and force. It is a revelation of God, in some aspects yet only the Old Testament, so to speak, for it does not tell nearly all, nor the best part. The opulent, inexhaustible, infinite God does not arrive at complete self-disclosure in nature. If he did, atheistic materialism could not exist, would have no standing. A person addicted to the narrow and exclusive study of physics may easily issue out of his investigations a religious skeptic, because he sees only obscure footprints of the supreme, a tremendous, anonymous, inexorable energy moving on the whole cosmic order with mechanical precision and in an unconscious way. One does not discover in nature a being who is the sum of all moral perfections. One finds much there that is capricious, incalculable, perplexing. The idea of God as a person, as the Prius of all things, as holy, just, good, cannot be constructed out of natural laws and processes, out of matter, motion, and force. There is the same alternation of light and dark in the revolutions of history and in the corporate life of mankind. Take for an example any divine attribute, and it does not get complete vindication in this twilight world. Justice certainly is not swiftly and universally done. God does not interfere to prevent the slaying of his witnesses. He only takes care that the principles are not slain along with their champions. The martyrs have perished, but their doctrines have survived. Monopolies of power and prosperous vulgarity, combinations of unscrupulous men, often hold a long lease and set their nests among the stars, whence it is hard to dislodge them. One can readily see the dark side if he look at the providential leading of the race. The universal, all-embracing, all-conquering love of God, as the very jewel of his attributes, does not shine conspicuous amid the ignorance, barbarism, squalor, and low, depraved condition of vast populations. Hardly any century but has been filled with alternate hope and despair, hardly any day without a cloud, hardly any invention that has not passed through a probation of suspense and anxiety. This is the way of God with man, to set him down in a mixed scene, changeful, freakish, now blazing up into something like the light of demonstration, now dying down into vast and awful glooms. This same analogy holds good in relation to the Bible. Every religious opinion that can get a living comes hither for some prop or presumption in its favor. Sects and doctrines, the most contradictory, all repair to the Christian revelation as an arsenal of arms and ammunition. No other sacred books are susceptible of such latitude of interpretation of so much inferential theology. I am not aware that Muhammad's Koran, or the holy books of the Hindus, or the mythology of Hesiod and Homer, which were the Bible of the old classical nations that lived around the Mediterranean, or the precepts of Confucius and the Chinese sages, have been such a bone of contention and apple of discord as the Christian scriptures. The Calvinist finds his definitions of God and man and the divine moral government there. The Romanist finds his hierarchy and sacramental grace. The Quietist finds his inner light and silent waiting and mystic ecstasy and intense subjectivity. 
the millenarian finds his views touching the second advent and the national restoration of Israel. The literalist and the allegorizer each find support for their methods and conclusions in the Bible. Critics may allege that this proves too much, hence nothing at all, and is an argument against the authenticity of the Christian scriptures. But, if so, it is in keeping with all the other wonders of divine self-disclosure. It is neither clear nor dark. If conflicting theologies did not pitch their tents upon this field, if the Bible were lifted high above all controversy, if its true sense and intention were perfectly luminous and transparent, this would be totally unlike God's treatment of man and mode of action, in nature and in providence. But, so far as we can see, God is self-consistent everywhere, and in all places of his dominion. One points his telescope to the skies, and his microscope to the microcosm on the leaf or in the drop of water, and says, I find skill, order, adaptation here, but not holiness or justice. Thereupon he turns over the leaves of history, and reads how the world has rolled through authentic time, out of darkness into light, out of the Orient into the Occident, out of Asia into Europe, out of the stagnation of the East into the energy and adventure of the West. Ah, he says, this is great and wonderful, but not quite satisfactory. I would have made the verdict of history more decisive. I would have made more examples, and given instant emphatic condemnation of the wrong and a triumphant vindication of the right. Next he opens the Bible and finds that the same analogy reigns there. Upon some questions it is day, upon others it is dark. In other words, the disclosure of deity to mankind is an ascending scale, starting with nature, rising into providential action, and culminating in the gospel. And everywhere there is haziness in the air, clear and solar light on some topics, fog and doubt on others. But while this is confessedly true, the prophet's oracle is encouraging in that it affirms that the world is headed in the right direction and moving steadily toward the light. His optimism is not of the deistical sort, which declares that whatever is, is right. It is rather a modification of this, a conviction that whatever is in process of becoming, whatever is continuously on the way to be, the ultimate stage, the finality that will be right, it will be light at evening time. This is a very comfortable doctrine, that whatever appearances may indicate to the contrary, and however dim the outlook for goodness and truth in the earth may be, the broad tendency is in that direction. The world is revolving through slow, secular ages out of darkness into day, out of a crude, sour, astringent state toward an eternity of summer and a golden fruitage. This, evidently, is the vision of the Hebrew prophet. It is the burden of all true prophecy that the morning must chase the night that good must overcome evil, and that the Christ must cast out Satan. Moreover, standing today on the edge of a vanishing year, it is spontaneous and becoming in one to reflect upon this blessed and cheering fact, that all the dark ages and dispensations that have rolled their firmaments over this world have been unconsciously seeking a clear, placid, splendid sunset, and shall finally ultimate in it as the only solution that can explain them. The sun must set round and red, and broad and full. There must be light at evening, else we shall not be able to expound the mystery of sin and man. This is a great generalization that all the ages of human history and all its civilizations, from the Mongol to the Greek, from the aboriginal man or the Paleolithic man, clear up to the summit and highest specimen of the species, and all the ages of stone and iron and lead and bronze, of old primeval giants and barbaric kingdoms, 
that once rejoiced in their rude, uncouth strength, but went out, star after star, all of them, and have been unconsciously groping their way toward something better, a more stable constitution, a city of God, the kingdom of God and of His Christ. This is really the only consideration that can commend or consecrate them, that each of them was a temporary stage, to be torn down as the vast temple rose nearer to its roof and pinnacle. The bell of judgment rang the curtain down upon them because they were not fit for permanence, were darkness rather than light, held more of evil than of good. And this process must still go forward, the old make way for the new, the lower for the higher, the temporal for the eternal, until at length the great year of jubilee, the age of prediction, the kingdom of the heavens dawns upon the earth, and that which has so long lain potential becomes the actual. This is the organic tendency of things, although, at any one point of time, men may not see it to be so. When John Wycliffe's ashes were scattered upon the Thames, it did not look as if his Bible could live, but it did. When John Huss was burned, it seemed as though his Protestantism had perished also, but it did not. When the splendor of Greece faded out of the sky, the Greek learning still abode in the world, and flamed up later in the revival of letters and in the Greek Testament. Phoenicia passed down the sky, but, in process of time, Spain and England took up the same seafaring tradition, and did infinitely more for the exploration and colonization of the globe. Italy, the birthplace of the modern spirit, declined from her zenith, but not until she had handed over her treasures, her art, scholarship, science, all her humanities to Germany, France, and England. And any contemporary spectator of loud, world-shaking events, who witnessed the winding up of an old and the birth of a new era, a new act in the long historic drama that has been playing on our planet, any such living in a day of stir and strain and horrible confusion and tumult, when perhaps a Scythian barbarism or an army of Goths and Huns or a French revolution broke out, might have said, the world is waxing old and in its last phase, fierce elements of chaos are racking it to pieces, this egg fit will shake it to ashes. Yet it has never been so. The earth with man upon it has continued to wheel around its orbit, and has eventually outrun the gloom and storm, and caught the sunlight once more, and sailed into a milder clime and halcyon seas. God has apparently planted a conservative principle, a reparative virtue, a potential seed of salvation in this world. The old ship, though rocked in a monsoon, has finally righted itself, has never been quite engulfed. From age to age, in every century, it has been light at evening. There have been barbaric invasions, but the barbarians have been at length tamed and civilized. There have been plague and pestilence, but it has put men upon cleanliness, ventilation, sanitation, hygiene. There have been cruel wars for religion, for soul liberty, for conscience and political independence. But the boom of guns has died away. The smoke has cleared out of the sky and over the battle-graves have spread green pasture-land and acres of waving wheat and corn. The blood of martyrs has been like wine poured forth that has strengthened and solidified the church. Men have trembled for the ark of God. In every period of history some precious interest, some essential principle, some cardinal commandment, some law of duty and safety, has often seemed to be imperiled, almost obliterated. Yet after a time the evil has cured itself, a sharp reaction has set in, and the world has found out that it cannot dispense with decency, order, 
sobriety, moderation, and justice. Light has come at evening. The same consolation abides for us who look out upon all the sore evils under the sun. If we are permitted to argue from the past, if there is any light in experience, these are not fixtures, not finalities, but are on the way to judgment and a righteous sentence. Bad men and bad measures, all dishonesties and crimes, all organized, powerful, impregnable iniquities, all wastes, abuses, wrongs, are on the road to correction. Or if they will not submit to that, to doom and downfall, at least, if justice is a pillar of God's cloudy, awful throne. Their demise and disgrace may not come in our day, but they are of a perishable nature, and liable to become outdated and outworn, if, indeed, it is a truth that light will come at evening, and the children of light will take the kingdom, and the meek inherit the earth. Observe once more that the same law holds true in personal experience. Zechariah's prediction encourages us to commit ourselves trustfully to the unknown future and to the mercy of God, confident that light will finally unweave the darkness amid which we walk. No serious mind but often has such queries as these spring up. Is life a dream? A somnambulism? A mirage? A gay bubble glancing on the tide? Or is it a shadow projected by a tremendous reality behind? Such reflections naturally overtake thoughtful and earnest souls as the years slip by and time assesses our goods and chattels and sells us out. What is life? What is time? What is eternity? Whither do I tend? Surely he must be afflicted with incurable levity who does not, now and again, revolve these solemn topics. The bold philosophy of Bishop Berkeley, called idealism, holds that the whole external world is empty-seeming, the product of mind, has no more connection with reality than a word has with the thing to which it is applied. Nothing can be perceived except the ideas of the mind. Matter has no existence save as it is perceived by some intelligence, human or divine. This is radical, thorough-going doctrine, and of a lofty kind. It is the contradictory opposite of materialism, and a highly spiritual philosophy. Thinkers in every age have ventured upon ontological speculation. They have inquired, what is being? What is existence? What is this vast, boundless world of eye and ear? What is the ego? What is the non-ego? And they have not been able to reach a unanimous verdict. What is reality? This is one of the secrets to be opened and broken in a higher and a future life, for there will be light at evening. It may well be that now in the flesh we are in contact with shadows, echoes, pretexts, forms, but after a while we shall see, we shall know, we shall touch reality. No doubt this our temporal ignorance is wisely intended, for if there were no temptation, there would be no virtue. If there were no darkness, you would not know light. If demonstration reigned in all realms, there would be no room for hope and faith. If righteousness were not persecuted and jailed and iniquity enthroned, a powerful argument for a future state of adjustment would be wanting. If there were no outstanding mysteries, no intellectual perplexity, there would be no progress, no effort, no struggle. At the same time, while this arrangement seems to be necessary for the education of the human soul, under present limitations, it is not installed as a permanent fixture. You have a title to believe that whatever now frets and troubles you, whatever doubt, suspense, and fear ravage your peace, will finally be cleared up, will be explained by some missing link you cannot now find. Light will break. 
Not only so in some larger, more ample future, but even here it is your right and privilege to move continuously into the light. Each passing year should leave you a more illuminated soul, more cheerful, more hopeful, more contented, more assured. We read that the two-pillar doctrines preached by Wesley and Whitefield in words of flame to the dead, deistical 18th century were the new birth and assurance. They are equally appropriate to our contemporary age. Assurance, conviction, light, joy, these are of first-rate importance to us who go pilgrimizing to eternity. You will want more light as you move on into the great dark, and you can have more. What will you do without light at evening? You must have it, and you can get it from him who cries, quote, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. Unquote. Each fleeting year may increase the inflow of divine life to your dead soul. Each year may bring a more immediate, continuous, and conscious operation of God upon you. Only so can you get light, light as evening draws on. It must enter from beyond, from the outer infinite, from the sphere of spirit. By death to self and by entrance into the sublime spirituality of Christ, into his great renunciation and perfect obedience, there will come an opening of God within you, through which light will gradually spread and shine, and shine more and more. There is no other way to get a religious hope. If anyone complain that life is dark, and the world and death and eternity all dark, frightfully dark, that the fast-filling years bring him no relief, no comfort, no message, no meaning, it must be that he has not come into effectual relation with Jesus Christ, has not learned his secret, has no spark of that perpetual inspiration of God, that illuminated and sustained him, has not come into real sympathy with him who declared, quote, I am the resurrection and the life, unquote. For God hath not appointed us unto darkness and death, but unto light and life. This is man's true destiny. This is the indication of his being. This is written in his constitution. This is the true evolution of his nature, to become a spiritual, illuminated, lofty and powerful creature, and move forward evermore out of darkness, narrowness, and limitation into the light of a larger life. Each of our mortal years should see this process hastened and visibly maturing, until at length, at the evening time, the light of a better world shall break upon us. End chapter 4